Hi, friends. I just wanted to do a quick little intro to the intro here for this episode. I had this episode all ready to go. I actually released it to patrons, I believe, on Sunday. And Heather and I recorded it last week. And then yesterday, I ended up meeting with one of my sources, who was a wonderful lady who knew Kid Can. She knew him as Fergie. And we talked about the different stories. We talked about how she knew him, what he was like. And I got to feeling kind of bad about anything derogatory I said about him. And so I just want to say that some of the things like I know I've said before that he's full of shit and he probably was, but I feel I'm feeling kind of bad about saying that now. So, you know, I my thoughts could change again. And if any of you listening have any stories for me, good or bad, um, I would love to hear them. You can call the number in the show notes. Uh, the reason I don't give the number is I've changed it a few times and this is forever. So um, you'll have to check the show notes because I can change that if the number has to change. So check that uh, the show notes slash description of this video for the phone number. And or you can always email me at volsteadland at gmail.com. That's not going to change. So um, and just either leave me the story or tell me you want to talk. Um, if you're local, we can meet. If you're not, we can do it over Zoom. We can do it over phone. We can do it over text, voicemail, whatever, email, whatever works for you. Um, I do, I want to hear from more people because the story that I have been coming up with is all based on newspaper articles and books. And we all know that those are kind of unreliable. And so um, I'm asking for your help, your insight, your stories, because I do want a full rounded version of Isidore Blumenfeld's, Blumenfield's um, real story. And I'd like both sides. So with that, here you go. Episode 10, the wrap up. Welcome to Volstead Land. I'm Amy and this is Heather. Hello everyone. We're so glad you're here. Join us as we take a trip back in time to the 1920s and 30s in Minneapolis and discover the city's underworld. If you have not yet listened to the previous episode, The Wum Wing, or any of those before it, you'll probably want to check them out as there is some stuff there that you'll need to know to get the most out of this one. So sit back, grab a drink of choice, and join us as we start to wrap up the life of Kid Can and his reign in Minneapolis's underworld. Okay. Heather, what you drinking? Well, today I'm having a bourbon and ginger beer with a splash of bitters prepared for me by husband Greg. All right. And um, I uh, celebrated my birthday this month by getting uh, diagnosed with diabetes. So I am drinking uh, Bev, which is a sugar-free wine that I started ordering a long time ago. And then I just kind of stopped because I wasn't drinking wine very much, but it looks like that's what I'm going to try to drink more often than not. So yum, cracking it open. They have a bunch of flavors. This one is um, the California Pinot Grigio. 
and it's actually really good. They're all good. Um, I, I really like the one that's called glitz. It's sparkling like mine. And they also have a sparkling rosé now too. Lovely. So so that'll be fun. (laughs) Cheers. Cheers. And, um, I'll put a link in the show notes to, um, Bev, if anybody else wants to try it, it's a subscription thing. So you, you get it delivered to you once a month for, I think it's $47 for eight cans and each can is like a glass and a half. So don't be drinking four of them and thinking that you've drank four wines because it's really more like a bottle and a quarter. (laughs) I've made that mistake. (laughs) So I wanted to mention that we started a Facebook group this week and it's doing pretty good so far. I just created it. um, I don't know, Sunday maybe. And last time I checked, we had 60 some people, but Heather said she checked it and there was 80 something, right? Yep. Um, I don't have my browser open right now, otherwise I would go check it. Um, But anyway, come on over and chat to crime, Minneapolis history, or any other old Anything else you want to talk about. Yeah. I mean, we're not. Yeah. It's going to be fun. (laughs) Uh, Most of the people in there are people I know because I invited my whole friends list. Um, But I want people that I don't know in there too. I want to, I want to meet new people and people that enjoy the podcast or genres like it. So, um, so yeah, I'll put that link in the show notes too. Um, or you can just go to Facebook and in groups, just search Volstead land and it'll pop up. Okay. What's next? Um, oh, so I mentioned it was my birthday last week or actually it was two weeks ago, a uh, week and a half ago. Well, it's so birthday month still. It's birthday so. month and I celebrate all month. We try to stretch it out as long as possible. And so I treated myself to some new scents from um, my favorite online perfumery, which Heather is also my favorite. Yes. She's the one that turned me on to it. And I had picked one. um, I got one that I already had a little tiny vial of, because every time you order, they give you a little, a little freebie, a little free vial of something. And so I'd already gotten one for one called goth as fuck, which that's another thing is their, their names are hilarious and they write stories. They have like a little short story about each scent. And there's so many scents. Oh my God. There's so many. And then they, they have so many that they, um, they like stop making some of them for a while and then come back and bring them back. So like my favorite, I think is, I have a lot of favorites, but my current favorite is the night King and I love it, but I, it, I didn't put the top on all the way one day. And when I picked it up, it was all wet. And I realized that a lot of it had leaked out. It's almost gone and it's discontinued. So that's in the game of Thrones realm. They have, yep. They have, um, they have like an Aria and a, uh, Sansa and that's the night King and they have Jamie. Oh, I also have Jamie. I like that one too. Um, but anyway, so I, this time about, one that I had the little vial for that I liked. And then I decided to just guess um, based on the scent notes. And I picked one called Ice Witch. Ice Witch, that is. And the scent notes, yeah, I gave it to Heather because I want I want her to try it because um, I think it would be something oh. that... Yeah, it, it is smell something a little I like. lemony? Yeah. The, um, the Ooh, scent- and it also, I'm getting some peppermint too. Yeah, okay, so it Ooh. says... Oh, I like it so much. <laughs> I've, I've got to get this. Yeah, it's a good one. So the scent notes are a well-guarded fortress atop an icy mountain, rich, frothy vanilla laced, uh, sorry, a rich, frothy vanilla drink laced with peppermint, fennel, and cardamom, touches of smoke and incense burns. Oh, and I yeah, know you don't good. love incense, but I thought right. you'd like that because it smelled lemony to me. I know it doesn't say it has any lemon in it, but. Um, I thought it, I know you like stuff. That it smells, smells like very soap. clean. Yes. Yep. You like, I like clean the clean. Yeah. Yep. And yep. peppermint is my favorite smell. Yep. So yep. it's perfect. Yeah. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so anyway, that's good. I just want, um, I, you know, this isn't an ad or anything. They don't pay us or anything, but they're a woman owned woman run um, perfumery in Washington state. I believe is that where they're from either Washington or Oregon, I think maybe. Okay. okay. 
but they're, they're awesome. They're great customer service and they make all these perfumes, like all that they make them right there in their lab. So, um, super cool. So I'll, I'll put in a link to them too, in the show notes and you guys can try it if you want. The name of the company is Sucre Bay and it is French for the word bee as in honeybee. All right, with all that out of the way, let's get into it. Okay. Now, this is the last chapter, if you will, of um, Kid Can's life. And there's, I thought there was just a few things. I'm like, oh, this is going to take me like 20 minutes. It's like five things happened. It's no big deal. And then as I got into it, of course, rabbit hole, <laughs> rabbit hole, rabbit hole. So, there are a couple things that were so interesting that I am going to rein myself in. It's very difficult for me, but I'm going to rein myself in so that I can do a deep dive on some of these things because I think they're they're too good to just do five minutes. So they're going to have their own chapter, their own episode. And you're working on an episode. I am. Already. I'm doing a deep dive into Machine Gun Kelly and his wife, Catherine. We first heard about him when you were researching the Urshel kidnapping, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. I can't wait. I purposely have not looked into it myself because I want to be surprised. <laughs> but I do want to see that movie that you sent me. Yes. The link that to. stars Charles Bronson in 1958 wow. called Machine Gun Kelly. It looks kind of horrible. Like, <laughs> from a filmmaking standpoint, but also in a, in a fun, good way that will be campy and interesting. Good. So I'm planning to watch that this weekend. Okay, good. Yeah. That sounds fun. I'll probably watch it this weekend too. We can watch it at the same time and text each other (laughs) (laughs) or you can just come over. (laughs) Okay. So we're going to start with um, 1940. And in September of 1940, there were reports that kid can had been shot but uh, his brother, Harry, said he's just fine and that he had, they had spent the day together, which then um, had me going back to that theory that Harry and Izzy Kid Can are often confused with each other because they look alike and they're sort of close in age. And I started thinking, um, I wonder if Harry even exists and if Izzy wasn't just like using his name and then, I mean, hmm. It's not. I, I did some digging, <laughs> and he does show up on the census, um, okay. along with <laughs> along with uh, Isidore and um, all this, all the other the other brother, no, two other brothers, and um, the sisters. He had two sisters also. They're all there until Harry gets married and he's on his own census. So he does exist. I also found his draft card, and I'm oh. going to put all that up. Um, in the video version. So, uh, okay. So during the, this is 1941 during the mayoral race, the two men who were running were slinging mud as is usual in these things. But what I thought was funny is that both of them accused the other of being in kid cans pockets and being backed by the can element. It's just a minor blip. I just thought that it was funny that he was a big enough deal for the one thing that these two mayoral candidates have in common for how to knock each other down is to say, Oh, you must, you must be friends with him. You must be in with him and then, <laughs> you know, make everybody else not like them for that reason. Um, next up is the Excelsior baking company scandal. Oh my. So yeah, this is very convoluted and it's a lot of, he said, he said, and it's not super pertinent to Kid Can, so I'm not going to get too in the weeds about it. But basically, uh, the Excelsior Baking Company was a bakery and a factory that was founded and owned by a man named Fuel. It's F-E-W-E-L-L. So I think it's Fuel. Uh, they were having some labor union issues, and the workers were preparing to strike. And if they did... Fellwell was told by his business partner, whose name is Tappan, that it would bankrupt the company. So with him being worried about bankruptcy, his partner's son swooped in and bought out 
Fellwell's stock and his own father's stock being the sole owner of the bakery. And then just three days later, the labor issues were resolved and everything oh, was fine. like magic. Like magic. So Fuel sued. <laughs> I've had two sips. Um, Fuel sued his former partner, his son and his son's wife for basically cheating him out of the shares because they had led him to believe that the shares were worth very little. He had sold them to these guys for $20,000 when they were worth more like 200. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's not the way family should work. No, no, (laughs) that's not nice at all. So um, this is where kid can comes in those labor issues. Well, he and his associate, Joey Swartz had agreed to help negotiate and modify the union contract so that the workers wouldn't strike, but they wanted a great deal of money to do so. So the accountant was told to get the cash and give it to those guys and make it look good in the books, like basically creative accounting. And he was kind of the whistleblower. Uh, He finally was like, you know, something's not right here. So uh, Fuel was suing those guys and that all came up in the trial and Kid Can's name came up in the trial a lot. So um, again, he is very tangential in this one. He wasn't ever charged with anything. And in fact, the labor union official testified at the trial that can had nothing to do with the union or any of its representatives. However, I'm guessing that even if he did, uh, he would have said that. (laughs) (laughs) There's more to this story, but it doesn't really involve can. So I'm not going to get into it now. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll do it as a deep dive later, but it's honestly not that fascinating. It's just guys fucking each other over in business and. It happens. Okay, so now um, in 1946, on December 31st, 1946, so basically 1947, New Year's Eve, um, a man checked into the general hospital with head lacerations that he had gotten in a fight. He gave the name J.B. Davis and an address of 112 Oak Street. Both were lies. (laughs) The man, Kid Can. The address didn't even exist. Oh, so it was Kid Can who ended up in the hospital with head lacerations. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. He had gotten into a fight in a hotel lobby with a man named Rudolf Parapovich, who was a bouncer at a bar. It's probably not a really great person to pick on. <laughs> there was no police report, but the newspapers reported that he was aided by a few other men. He was brought to the hospital by the police, but no report was ever made. Parapovich says that he entered the hotel lobby and saw a woman he knew. So he started chatting with her. Can was in a phone booth nearby and said into the phone, hold the wire, Chicky. There's some wise guy I need to take care of. (laughs) And then, you know, a wise guy. (laughs) And then Can rushed Parapovich and slugged him, even though Parapovich told him he knew the girl and he was just saying hi. I was, as I was looking up something else, I noticed that Chicky is, I assume this is who he's talking to. Chicky is Davy Berman's brother. Davy the Jew. Davy the Jew. Mm -hmm. It's his brother, Chicky. (laughs) And I've got some pictures of them too, which I'll, I'll put up. Growing up, I knew someone named Chicky. Really? Yeah. Was it a guy? It was a man that, and I, my father listens to the podcast, so I probably shouldn't even be saying this, but my father did some illegal gambling on sports with a man named Chicky when I was young. <laughs> Do you suppose it could have been him? I mean, these guys well, this would be in Boston. So, well, they were all over the place. He was really old been. when I was like young. So yeah, he could have. Yeah. Maybe. Ooh. <laughs> Ask your dad. Maybe it's him. <laughs> Is his last name Berman? I don't know. Find out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was into that stuff, so it's very possible. All right, so I have to believe that there's more here. Um, I'm wondering if Can was pimping and this girl was one of his and he was protecting her. I don't know. But anyway, the rep- the papers reported that Parapovich said, when Can took a slug at me, I really went to work on him. But a couple weeks later, he denied ever saying that. He even showed up at the paper's office and vehemently denied that he had ID'd the other guy as Kit Can. 
He said, I don't know the man I was fighting with, and I never told anyone that I knew who he was. I made no statements as to his identity, except that I didn't know who he was. People are afraid of Kid Can. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure he did say that. And then he was like, oh, shit. Witnesses' accounts to the fight were not too coherent, but most of them agree that the opponent was aided by three friends. Also, they agreed that Parapovich was more than a match for Kid Can, the self-styled pugilist and his allies. <laughs> then it says uh, in this same article, it says veteran boxing authorities say they don't remember any boxer fighting professionally as Kid Can. So I guess we're back to the potty story. <laughs> Can himself said that it wasn't him. He says he was in Miami at the time. The police basically said it was can, but that it was no big deal. It was just two drunks. And then there's, I pulled out a section from the newspaper. That was a question, a Q and a with the police chief and, Oh, it's a star tribune reporter. Who's asking Glenn McLean, who is the uh, police chief. He says it was just a fight. And then the reporter says, did you know it was kid can who was beat up? And he says, I was told who it was unofficially the next day question. Did that information make any difference in your attitude when you discovered there was no report on what really took place? No, I turned it over to Bernath. That's a police police officer who was on the scene. After all, there was no complaint, no prosecution. Question. Isn't it customary for uniformed squads to make out a report in a serious fight in a leading hotel when prominently (laughs) known characters are involved? (laughs) Answer. It's not necessarily in the case of a fight when no complaints are made. Question. Well, in this case, a man known about town was badly hurt. I should think that the police would have made an exception in such a case and reported it immediately. Don't you think it might have led to more serious trouble? Answer. No, I didn't pay much attention to it. And I didn't know what took place except that four men decided to beat up one man and got taken themselves. Question. Then you wouldn't want to make an investigation of this? Answer. No. And then the paper says the winner of the fight was still the loser. Parapovich not only lost his job, but was fined $10 on the drunkenness charge. I think it's so funny that the police chief, who doesn't think this is any big deal at all, bothered to even answer these questions. I know. It's like, (laughs) seems a little silly. Yeah. Well, then right after the fight. But good for the reporter for getting to ask the questions, because obviously they realize that. Well, I I think like, I mean, maybe it's still this way, but I feel like reporters are the only ones that get shit done. I mean, they're the only ones that look into stuff. Everybody else is like, oh, it's no big deal. And then they go, you know, ask the hard questions. Um, But the day after the fight, Hubert H. Humphrey um, of airport and Metrodome fame (laughs) said the police handled. (laughs) Actually, that happened way later. (laughs) um, Said the police handled the case properly and the case was closed. And none of those involved were willing to press charges or testify. The hospital bills for the can folks were paid by Abe Perkins, who we also know as Abe Perkansky. He's the one way back in episode one, I guess. Um, remember when Charles Goldberg was killed outside the, the bar? Oh the, oh, the bar. Okay. Yep. Outside the bar. Yep. It was like the first really big thing that Kid Can did. Um, and he says the gun just went off when he was, they were scrambling about it. Uh, Perkansky is the one who owned the gun. Oh. They've been friends for a long time. He changed his name to Perkins. And then I do believe he also is called Monty because we'll hear about him later too. So officer Bernath, who was on the scene, referred to Ken as a Sir Galahad, who was only defending a woman's honor. We're going to hear more from him too. So side note, Parapovich was arrested a few days later uh, with when a quote quantity of merchandise was found in his garage. Some of the merch was gun parts and ammo that was identified as coming from a gun shop that was burglarized in in September. So this was uh, January. So a few months before also found were wrenches, fans, radios, a new hydraulic jack, electric carpet sweepers and lampshades. (laughs) I don't know who he (laughs) robbed like a pawn shop (laughs) Um, of the parts of the gun parts in his truck. He says, do you think I'd be fool enough to carry it around in my car if I stole it? The reason he was searched at all is that it came to light that he knew a couple of underworld guys. And so they went to his house and searched. So then a few days after this fight, 
the (laughs) Hubert or yeah, Hubert Humphrey uh, changed his tune. The police were reprimanded by him. He said, Minneapolis has a few persons and characters who have repeatedly come under observation of the police because of their activities. I'm satisfied that some parties involved in the Nicollet Hotel fight have been questioned before by the Minneapolis police. Let the rule of this administration be that such persons be given no special consideration by any member of the police department. And then Chief McLean, who was all, oh, it's no big deal, uh, came out, blamed the public and the hotel management for being uncooperative. Uh, He pointed out that police officers are individually responsible for their actions and cannot detain anyone without being subject to damage suits or false arrest. Oh, yeah. Then, Which I find interesting because it's not like that now. Obviously, the police can haul off and murder somebody, and then the union just sticks up for them. Uh, So two years later, he gets in another fight. And once again, it gets at the very least downplayed. So uh, I'll back up a little bit. Can was in business with a man named A.E. or Eddie Holman. The company was called Minnesota Machines. It was a pinball franchise and service route. So they would place pinball machines in bars all over town and then go service them. Uh, Holman would collect the receipts pay the help and do the books and kid can and his other partner, whose name is Morris Goldberg. um, They would lean on the bars exerting influence to get the machines placed in the most lucrative spots. The rumor is that they wanted to obtain a monopoly on coin operated devices in Minneapolis. And they kept referring to this as being gambling, but I don't know of any way to gamble on a pinball machine, unless you're just like sitting around with a bunch of guys and you bet, that you can beat Maybe, their score yeah. or something. I mean, now you now there's like video the, poker, obviously, and slot machines, but right. I don't think they had those right. that advanced. Well, they might. No, certainly not right. where the money right. you know, would be right. coming from the machine or whatever. I don't think anyway. I don't know. Maybe that's a, something we got to look into. But so his, uh, their partner, Morris Goldberg, this is a side note. He was apparently a go-between in a St. Paul kidnapping in 1931. A guy named Morris Rutman, who was a former St. Paul bootlegger and current, currently then a dress shop owner, was kidnapped from his home in St. Paul and released three days later. But during that time, he was burned, tortured, and forced to write ransom notes. Oh. Yeah, they said that um, in another article that I read, they, they poured gasoline on him and then threw matches at him so that it would burn, oh. burn off. Uh, two St. Paul hoodlums were tried and convicted of the kidnapping and a number of minor underworld characters were involved. And uh, I have a picture of Rutman at the hospital. Uh, the mayor at the time, Young Dahl, had cracked down on mechanical gambling and this put Minnesota machines in a financial rut. So the only hope was for a new mayor to make the town open again. Well, the new mayor had just been elected A month before this incident, his name was Eric G. Hoyer. And those who wanted an open town decided their best chance at prosperity was to select a, quote, reasonable police chief. Reasonable. Reasonable. So Eddie Holman had rented the Radisson Hotel's townhouse, which was described as a, quote, swank upper story apartment that cost $35 per day. That seems like a lot back then. Uh, according to the American Institute of Economic Research, uh, that is $395 in today's money, which is pretty steep. I wanted to find a picture of the inside of that place because I bet <laughs> I bet it was awesome, but I couldn't find anything. So he rented the suite for three days. And during this time, the selection of Minneapolis new police chief was narrowed down to four names. And Mayor Hoyer had not yet announced his choice. So during this time, nightclub managers, people involved in the liquor industry, politicians, and policemen were all visitors to Holman's suite. One paper said, gossip has it that the party was called to carve up the city, assigning certain sections to certain gambling and other illicit interests. Holman denies this. He says it was just a big party that just kept going and going. It 
was just a party to celebrate the sale of Minnesota machines. And it kept getting bigger and bigger. I don't even know half the bumps that showed up. (laughs) So yeah, Holman sold Minnesota machines. So he owned it with Kid Can and this other guy, Morris uh, Goldberg. Since the city seemed to be cracking down on gambling and this affected them financially, Can and Goldberg offered to either buy out Holman or to sell their portions to him. Holman offered them 10K each for their shares. I think it's each, um, which resulted in a loss for them. But the next day after the deal was made, Holman sold the company to another person at a profit. So Can and Goldberg believed that the new buyer had fronted Holman the money to pay off the other two. And so then they turned around and sued Holman. And this fight occurred just a few hours after the notice of the suit was served to Holman while he was having lunch at a fancy cafe. Fancy. Fancy. The fight happened at a place called Club Carnival. So this building is on 15th and Nicollet. Okay. It is right by... Um, Nicollet Diner. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. It's Market pretty close barbecue. to Nicollet. Yep. It's like maybe a block away from downtown. I don't know what direction that is. I'm horribly directionally challenged, but it's a block. If you're driving away from downtown, Mm -hmm. it's about a block more than that. So this is the building that was the happy hour bar, the flame. It was known as Kid Can's headquarters. And then for a long time, it was a, a tape duplication store Uh, like you could go in and bring your like cassette tapes and they would put them on to um like reel to reel or take reel to reels and put them on dvds or whatever i think it was called great tapes or something like that it was that for a long time i looked it up now and now it is a um rehabilitation center an alcohol rehabilitation center which i think is kind of fitting seeing as it was um yeah so it's a cool building though. It's got like, it's, it's, it's on the corner and the the door is directly on the corner. So it kind of goes like this through the, down the street and it's got glass block on the sides. It's very deco. It's really cool. I'd love to go in there, but I don't, I don't think they (laughs) let me come in and just look around. (laughs) Um, But anyway, (laughs) uh, it was owned and run by Abe Perkansky and who is also Abe Perkins, Monty Perkins and, We'll hear about him in a little bit too. Uh, anyway, so to hear Holman tell the story, it was Kid Can that invited him to the bar and then beat him up once he was there. Can says the fight didn't even happen in the bar, but on the street. This is his quote. This guy, Holman, came along popping off at the mouth. He'd been drinking. One thing led to another and I defended myself like you or anybody else would. And since neither of the men were talking, the story was pieced together from eyewitnesses who were more than happy to tell what they saw but they were probably as (laughs) usual in these cases, a little drunk. Um, The night in question, Holman showed up at club carnival between six and 7 PM. And then the reports differ. Most agreed that it was what they called a two blow affair with each participant landing a Sunday punch before they were separated. What is a Sunday punch? Do we think? I I assume it's just a good sock (laughs) to the eye because they both had black eyes. Okay. (laughs) So Can was ushered out the back door and his eye was patched. Holman stuck around and got a steak to put on his eye (laughs) because he's like a walking cliche, apparently. (laughs) Neither principal in the brief bout was willing to comment other than to volunteer a few words about the ancestry of his adversary. Sugar-free goodness. Okay. This is the 1950s. The feds were investigating Kid Can all throughout the 50s, trying to find something that would stick. In 1959, it was reported that Kid Can was planning to move to Miami Beach. His house in Minneapolis had hit the market, and he was going to leave as soon as it was sold. But there were a few things keeping him here. For one, his old buddy slash rival, Tommy Banks, was going on trial for income tax evasion, and the judge wanted to call Can as a witness. He was subpoenaed, so he ended up having to stay in town, um, but ended up pleading the fifth 
and refused to even give his telephone number. His brother, Yuri Bloom, was also subpoenaed, and he also pled the fifth. So this was a really busy time for Kid Can. Not only was Tommy Banks on trial, but so was he for a few kind of major things. So in 1955, it was reported that there had been a grand jury investigation into Can's financial activities. As you probably know, it's historically been very hard to nab underworld criminals on anything because no one wants to talk. There's all the playoffs and the cover-ups and connections with law enforcement, et cetera. So usually the best the feds can do is to get them on tax evasion. So that's what was happening here. Huh. Yep. So the IRS concluded that a top secret investigation into the handling of a $500,000 tax claim against Can. So he must have been making a boatload of money if he owed $500,000 in taxes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In an article in the Star in February of 1955, it mentioned that the IRS had also looked into a well-known Minneapolis restaurant owner. Now, one of my sources mentioned that article and they said they know who it is. I don't want to say who they thought it was because they might be wrong. Um, But I wanted to mention that I will talk more about this in the last episode that we do, because the last episode I'm planning on just you and I will just go through all of the leads that I got from people, all the things people told me. And so um, we'll, we'll get, we'll get more into that in that episode. Um, so the, they're mainly concerned in determining if the tax laws were properly applied to the multiple and overlapping interests of these people and in these and other business ventures in the years 1941 to 1947 and subsequent thereto, particularly in view of the decision of the tax court of the United States in the case of Charlie's Cafe Exceptionnel. So I loved that name. <laughs> yes. And so I Googled it and holy rat hole, <laughs> rabbit hole, Batman. I was obsessed and I probably spent like three hours just looking at everything about Charlie's Cafe Exceptional. <laughs> and I ended up with a potato salad recipe. Ooh. So more on that. We're going to do it's It's going to have its own episode or at least its own half of an episode because maybe cool. we can eat it during the wrap up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll have potato salad and and drinks. I did find a handwritten um, sheet that had the drinks and the recipes on them. Oh, nice. It's really hard to read. one and have it with potato salad. Yeah, so it's like a Manhattan, an old-fashioned, a a president. I can't remember all the drinks, but I'll I'll put that up in the the video too. But yeah, we can mix up some uh, Charlie's. Exceptional <laughs> drinks and have some potato salad. The key to the potato salad was that they make their own mayonnaise. Oh yes, which I know you. I do tell too. everyone that's a very very good thing to do. Yeah, it really elevates the recipe. Yeah, it sounded really good. I can't wait to try it. So anyway, the papers all had a list of people who are on the list for the grand jury, and let's just say that a good portion of that list is Kid Can's family his brothers, sisters, their spouses, their kids, their kids, kids, their kids, spouses. Oh, wow. um, and I yeah. have, um, I don't know if you'll be able to see this. This yeah. is, that is a family tree that the police put together. Of oh, all of the can folks, the black spots are all the children, I think. So they cut out, you know, they don't show the children, but um, most of those people were involved in this and like three of them got off. So hmm. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people and they were all, it was a family affair. I mean, when they say it was an organized crime family, it was, there were, it was like Perkansky <laughs> slash Perkins and the Bermans. And then everybody else was a Blumenfeld or a Bloom or a, yeah. Or, or a married, married to, to a Bloom. Exactly. <laughs> so here's another side note. On March 24th, 1955, I found a little blurb that the city council approved the bar license transfer from Dan Schneider to his wife, Mary. The bar is Danny's Bar and Cafe at 14th and Chicago. It's I looked and it's a parking lot slash vacant lot now. 
Um, the article states that she's the sister-in-law of Kit Kam, but she's actually his sister. His sister, Mary, who married Dan Schneider. She asked for the transfer after her husband had left the city. He failed to appear before the committee has ordered, but sent a letter from Chicago saying that he is, quote, merely away on a much needed rest and vacation. The transfer was to become effective April 4th when the license would have expired. So I got to wondering if he really was in Chicago or if he ever came back and like, was he really dead or what? And then (laughs) I found in July 29th, 1955 newspaper, Mary Schneider and Dan Schneider are listed at in the section of divorces granted. Oh, yeah. So, so that's that. Um, the grand jury investigation wouldn't come to a close until 1961. But in 1960, the paper reported that the Can fam had made $990,000 in profits in three years. Wow. That is huge. Yeah. For 1960. Yeah. But yeah. still, it seems like 500000 is a lot of taxes on a million dollars. Right. But right, right. <laughs> maybe they're going way back to other stuff, too. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't catch all the details, but it's all pretty dull and convoluted. We can do a deep, by, deep dive if need be. But um, let's just say the whole family was involved. Uh, there was a blurb from his lawyer, whose name is E. David Rosen, in the paper, saying basically that he feels sorry for Kid Can. Oh, poor Kid Can. Yeah, here's this quote. Having been with him for a period of almost two years in his various troubles, I have watched the man deteriorate mentally. I don't think he's insane, Your Honor, but I have watched him to the point where he doesn't think clearly any longer. He has no perception into the problems that would exist. And it's been one thing after the other, one case after another. And I say, Your Honor, I have watched him go down and down and down. And that's why I say, although I would certainly would never condone it, I do feel that I understand it and I do feel sorry for him. Cry me a river. It reminds me of a few recent cases like the Golden State Killer and the Robert Durst case where they, I mean, I know they're old. I know they're old and they are probably sick, but <laughs> I feel like the there are lawyers and of course the media too make them like they're all feeble old man and you should feel right. sorry for them even though yeah. they murdered a bunch of people. You know what? Right. Fuck them. Um <laughs> Especially Durst. I he I just found out he has COVID. He probably won't live long. Right. But I mean, I mean even like Harvey Weinstein, did you see him when he was in court? And he's like all yeah. like using a walker and yeah. they're trying to make him look feeble and so nope. ridiculous. Nope, we're not buying it. <laughs> Sell some other shit. All right. So meanwhile, Kid Can was doing some other stuff too. Now this, this story is my favorite just because it's so juicy and salacious. And uh, so I want to totally going to do a whole episode on it because there's way, way, way more than what I've got here. So I'm going to try and make it short and sweet. He was convicted at Kid Can was convicted and sentenced to two years for white slavery charges which is basically prostitution, sex trafficking. It involved transporting a woman to Minnesota for immoral purposes. He actually paid for her to, to come here for the, her transportation. He sent her money. It's not like he had her in the trunk of his car, which I totally thought at first. <laughs> um, and I'm not making excuses for him. He's a fucking turd in this story, but Here's the cliff notes. Picture this. I'm Sophia. Picture (laughs) this. It's November 1953. A young girl going by the name Marilyn Ann Tollefson traveled to Minneapolis for her sister's wedding. Her family was here. She was born and raised here until she was 17, but she was currently living in Newark, New Jersey. She was 20 years old at this time. She met Isidore Blumenfeld. Kid can in a cafe in Minneapolis and they chatted and then moved to the bar next door, had some drinks and she gave him her number. Well, her mother's number. She was staying with her mom. Like the gentleman that he is, he called her the following (laughs) Saturday and asked her to dinner. 
Now, keep in mind, he is married to Lillian at this time, but just casually dating a 20-year-old girl. He's 53 at this time. And maybe Lillian knew about this. Maybe she's on board. I don't know. I can't imagine this is his first fling. So I would imagine Lillian knew a lot about a lot of things and just knew to keep her mouth shut. Yeah. You know, interesting though, you know how all the other Blumenfelds put their wives on, uh, like their wives were all involved in stuff. Often they would put their wives' names on their liquor licenses because they were caught as bootleggers. And so they can't have a liquor license. So they would put their wife's name on. Um, She was, as far as I can tell, was never on any of that. Hmm. I don't know if she was as much a part of all of that as the other wives were or even the sisters. I don't see her name on anything, but maybe she was, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out why she was married to him. I just just don't know why she would be. Um, Anyway, they continued their affair, him giving her money, not necessarily every time they got together, but he helped her get an apartment in Minneapolis because her family didn't approve of her seeing him. (laughs) Wonder why. Um, And he helped her pay her rent. He took her out to dinner. Uh, He paid when they went gambling. Well, things started going sour. And that's, that's a, uh, a very generous way of saying it. It got very bad. And we'll talk more about that in the deep dive, but she started seeing other men and making money off of them. Um, She would take them to local hotels, but she would still see can occasionally. And he would give her 50 to a hundred dollars each time. And I looked that up. That is 460 to $900 in today's money. Eventually, she moved on and went to New York. Around 1959, she hit what she called rock bottom, and she reached out to him for help, but he ignored her. And so she reached out to his buddy Perkins, who was Abe Perkansky, because he was told, she was told by Izzy that if, you know, don't come to me with anything, go to Abe and he'll figure oh. it out. So she went to him and he... He had been helping getting her plane tickets and stuff this whole time. And actually there's some, there's another level to this where Abe might've been having a thing with her too. There's a whole section of like love letters that was found from her to him. Oh, wow. Yeah. We'll get into that another time. So this time though, Abe told her, that Izzy was not going to be shaken down by her anymore and she needed to leave him alone. So during her testimony at this trial, she said, quote, I was very sick and I was scared to death and I didn't know what was going to happen to me next. When asked why she was frightened, she said, well, number one, from Perkins' tone of voice, the next thing I expected to do was get knocked off. Knocked off, like killed? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So she went to the FBI and that started the whole process. And so while she, well, in the three months while they were waiting for the trial to start from when she reported it, she was in police custody for her safety. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So this is all super interesting. It gets, there's way, way, way more here, but I'm, that's all I'm going to say right now. <laughs> um. And we're going to have, I'm looking forward to, I'm looking more. forward to doing more <laughs> research on it because I kept getting done. I'm like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Are you fucking kidding me? And I'm like, I have to stop. I have to stop. There's other stories I have to finish for this. And then we'll get back to that. But which is really hard for me to do. <laughs> I'm a rabbit hole queen. So, okay. Now we're going to go to 1960 um, where there was a transit company scandal. Um, This is at the same time the liquor probe is going on and the white slaver case. Um, But he's also charged with fraud in the 1960 Twin City Rapid Transit Company scandal. So scrapyard dealers and car companies reportedly cheated their stockholders as part of a conspiracy to get streetcars sold off as scrap metal. So there was a streetcar system. Yes. And these people who owned this way I understand it and I could be wrong but the people who owned places who would buy and sell scrap metal convinced the city or this company to 
get rid of streetcars and go to buses instead. And they were like, well, what are we supposed to do with all of these streetcars and all this track? And they would be like, oh, I know a guy who'd buy that from you. And it was them. So Blumenfeld and Tommy Banks um, both held stock in the company. And uh, so they were, yeah, it was um, basically just some nefarious shit to make money and get rid of the streetcar system. A lot of people believe that we would still have a streetcar system today if it weren't for these guys. Wow. Um, that would be or cool. at least, you know, <laughs> at least subways, you know, that kind of thing. Or like in, um, in Chicago, the L. Yeah. Um, so five other men were sent to prison, including the president of the Twin City Rapid Transit. But Kit Can was found innocent of all charges. Because of, of course, course he was. He was. <laughs> <laughs> the original Teflon Don. Okay. So in 1961, the liquor trial finally came to a close. Found guilty were Can and most of his family, plus, plus um, Brownstein, who was one of the guys that was in that fight with Walter Liggett way back um, outside that cafe. Edward Berman and Perkansky slash Perkins. Uh, the ones found not guilty, Morris Fogel, who is the husband of Blanche, who is Lillian's sister. And actually, one of my sources knew Blanche and Morris. Oh, wow. I'd gone out to dinner with them with <laughs> with um, Fergie. He was being called Fergie at the time. Um, Izzy. And uh, yeah, that, so that'll be in that episode, too. And uh, Gerald Miller, who is the husband of Phyllis, who is Ethel's daughter. Ethel is Kid Can's sister. So soon after the trial was over, Monty Perkins slash Perkansky and another guy named Constant Custodio were arrested. (laughs) I know, a great name, right? He was arrested by the, they were arrested by the FBI on charges that they attempted to bribe the jury. Along with Kid Can. Um, and side note, Custodio's wife was a witness in the white slavery trial. All comes together. So they were, those three guys were all, they all tried to bribe the jury in the liquor trial. So in March of 61, the Immigration and Naturalization Services moved to deport Isidore Blumenfeld a show cause order on the convicted former bootlegger in Ramsey County jail charged that he is subject to de- deportation because of two convictions involving moral turpitude. Mm. <laughs> and the two were bootlegging in 1934 and the morals offense in 61, which is a white slavery case. I did read an article saying that they tried to deport him, but that Romania wouldn't take him back. <laughs> But I don't know if that's true. That that was like in a City Pages article or something. So I I couldn't find anything in the paper about it. Okay. So this was all really confusing because there were basically all these things going on at once. The white slavery trial, the liquor probe and trial, the transit scandal, and then the charge for bribing the jury in the liquor trial. So here's how it breaks down. This is according to uh, the Minneapolis Star paper. Monty Perkins slash A. Perkansky got three years imprisonment in the bribery case, no fine in the liquor case, one year plus one day imprisonment in the slavery case. I don't know what that one day was for. Uh, Kid Can got in the liquor case, he got two years and a fine of $20,000. In the slavery case, he got two years in prison and a $2,500 fine. In the bribing the jury and the liquor case, he got five years imprisonment and $10,000. And in the transit case, he was acquitted of everything. So do we know how much time he actually ended up doing in total? He was uh, in total. He was sentenced to eight years at Leavenworth, but he was very ill. And so he ended up spending most of that time in the hospital in St. Louis Here's an example at his sentencing in 1961. So this is before even going to prison. They're talking about his health. And he says, I've been bleeding. It's from an ulcer that has been taken out. 
75% of my stomach is taken out and my bladder also, and a gallstone operation back in 41. And the bladder one is only two years old. And the ulcer one is only three years old. Been May something of this month. I think it was. So like, he's not even making sense. I think his brain was a little bit adult. Right. Um, he said, I've just been passing blood. Hmm. Yeah. He sounds confused. And especially because after that, the judge says to him, I don't know if you killed Walter Liggett or not. And he jumps in with no, Siri. They told me that before they arrested me, even I didn't, but they indicted me. Mr. Nielsen told me that. So like, he's, I mean, obviously <laughs> he's acting like, oh yeah, someone told me that you think I killed. He forgot all about the fact that he was on trial. <laughs> for the murder i mean i don't know i think he was adult i do think he was adult but anyway he got out of jail early probably because of poor health he only ended up serving uh three years three four years. Eight, he got out he yeah. got out in september yeah he got out in september of 1964 and went to miami beach where he remained working with meyer lansky but he was in such poor shape i can't imagine that he could have done too much this is from Wikipedia. They reportedly continue, they meaning him and Meyer Lansky, they reportedly continued to make money through illegal activities, though they changed tack, focusing instead on stock market fraud, money laundering, and questionable real estate dealings. He frequently visited his family and friends in Minnesota and declared to a Minneapolis reporter in 1976 that he had recently turned on an offer to write his memoirs. Damn, that would have been a good read. Right? (laughs) He said, I have nothing to say, really. Hmm. But I could have gotten him talking. (laughs) He died in Minneapolis at Mount Sinai Hospital of heart disease in the summer of 1981. Now, I looked at Mount Sinai because I didn't know we had a Mount Sinai, but we did. It dissolved in 1991. It was on Chicago and 22nd. Oh, okay. I know where that is. And then it got woven into the whole HCMC universe. He is buried at the Adath Jeshroon Cemetery at 56 in France in Minneapolis. And we got to go visit. Yeah, we should do that. We should do that. Yeah, I was thinking that too this weekend because it's going to be beautiful out um, with all the leaves changing and everything. And so, yeah, I think we should go do our little field trip. Should we bring flowers? (laughs) Yeah, why don't we? Why don't we bring flowers? (laughs) Um, at his sentencing, the judge asked him, Mr. Isidore Blumenfeld, do you have anything to say? He said, yes, sir, your honor. I realize that this is serious. And all I can say is that I've destroyed myself. I've destroyed my family. I've destroyed my nephews, nieces, and little ones coming up. And I'm terribly, terribly sorry. And that's about all I can say. Oh, so. He felt bad, I guess. Yeah. Knowing that he's getting hauled off to jail. Too little, too late. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he's a fascinating guy. Fascinating. And he did, you know, as we'll talk about in the next episode where I, you know, bring in all this stuff from the sources. Um, he did, he did do a lot of good stuff. He did a lot of, um, a lot of good things for people, but he also did ruin a lot of people's lives and break a lot of rules. Laws. laws. Yeah. 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 So, all right. That's it. All right. Join us next time when we go through all of the people who have reached out to me over the last year, I guess, um, with their emails, voicemails, phone conversations, text messages, etc. I did have a couple of sources that were really great and they knew a lot of stuff and then they just dried up. (laughs) They just (laughs) ghosted me. So they gave me some stuff at first, but not much I can use because they were like, I'll get back to you on that. And then poof, which I'm not surprised to be honest. Right. Nobody wants to get in trouble and I don't want to get anyone in trouble. So, so yeah. But there's there's still some good stuff, and uh, so we'll we'll be talking about that next time. And then we're going to take a little break, and then we're going to get into the deep dives, and those are going to be pretty exciting, I think. Yes. Yeah. All right. All right. Bye. Have a good night. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Volsteadland. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode and visit us on all of our social media platforms for extra content. Volstedland is produced by me, Amy, at Whimsical Productions and is part of the Collected Sounds Network. Thanks for listening. Okie doke.